The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Micah 6, verses 3 through 8. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Howard. Good morning, everybody. Um, So I did listen in on uh, sermons from the last couple of weeks, and it just does a pastor's heart good to know that nothing is lost uh, when he's away. So last week, David Filson, before his wonderful exposition of Micah, let you all know that he'd been away for a week with high school students, and he said, that should explain to you why I am the way I am today. Uh, I am still jet-lagging a little bit. I'm seeing some of the folks that went on our Israel trip uh, here in the congregation. Um, So that should explain to you the way I am the way I am today. Um, But it's good to be back, and this is going to be the second to last sermon in our series on the prophet Micah. And this text reads a lot like a court case, but it's, it's, it's strange because God is the one who's on trial. The people of Israel are the ones accusing him. Micah, the prophet, is functioning as God's defense attorney. And the mountains are God's witnesses because God can't find anyone in Israel to witness on his behalf. So he says, if, if you're not going to witness on behalf of the Lord, then the rocks are going to cry out. The mountains are going to cry out. All nature is going to cry out and vindicate me. So just a little bit of a review of this book. Uh, you'll remember the first, the first few chapters felt like a freight train coming at us. And Micah the prophet, he's one of those prophets that punches really hard and right between the eyes, uh, right out of the gate. And, and what he's doing is, is he's especially confronting powerful people who are exploiting weak people for personal gain, but he's especially confronting preachers who are affirming powerful people for doing that very thing. And they're doing it because it's lucrative to do so. If we preach in such a way that we'll get the truth of God off of these powerful exploiting people's backs, they will pay us money. That's how it was working in those days. And the effect was that it poisoned the entire culture. And if you, if you do a review, 
you'll see that throughout Israel, this, this evil trickles down throughout the entire nation where there's greed, injustice, hardness of heart, pride, deceit, violence, idolatry of power and politics, and a loss of interest in seeking God. And what God does in response to this is he provides for his people the gift of misery. The gift of misery. That phrase takes me back to the prophet Jonah where it says that to this this reluctant, not just reluctant, but resistant prophet who, you know, God said, go this way and, and say these things, and he went the other way, running from God's call on his life, and it says that God provided a fish for Jonah, provided a fish to swallow him. And so he's in slimy, stinky darkness, and it's in that place inside the fish where a light bulb goes on for Jonah, and he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And then the fish spits him up on the shores of Nineveh, and he is um, you know, still reluctant. He reverts back to his, his negative mentality toward God and the calling of God on his life. And it says again that God provides for Jonah a worm to eat up the plant that was providing him shade on a hot day. God providing the gift of misery. That's what he's doing here. He says to Israel, who he never stops referring to as my people, at their best and at their worst, they remain my people. He says this, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. You will sow but not reap. You will tread olives but not drink wine. How can we call misery a gift? This is one of the examples, one of the many examples in Scripture and throughout history where God is inflicting what you could call love-motivated pain. Those of you who are in healthcare, you know what this is about. Sometimes you have to inflict maybe a surgical pain, a temporary pain, in order to protect your patient from a long-term, much greater pain. That's what's going on here. And Dr. Paul Brand, who uh, works primarily with those who have contracted leprosy, and leprosy is a unique disease. It's a lot like heart disease. You don't feel it. Uh, your nerves, your nerve endings are numb and, and your, your hands could be all cut up and, and, and bleeding and you don't even know it because you can't feel it. And so Dr. Paul Brand says this. He says, thank God for inventing pain. I don't think he could have done a better job. It is beautiful. Why would a doctor say pain is beautiful? Because pain is what strikes the urgency in a person's heart to seek the cure that is available. Leprosy is curable in ways that it wasn't back in Jesus' day. But this does press the question, you know, speaking of Israel, one of the places that we, we got to visit was the pool at Bethesda. And it was a, it was a surreal thing to, to look over the very place where Jesus encountered a man who was disabled and immobilized for 38 years. And he asked this man a curious question. He says, do you want to get well? 
I mean, what an odd question to ask a man who for 38 years has been immobilized (coughs) and disabled and begging others for money. But the thing is, and this is one of the things we learned on our trip, begging was a legitimate profession for those who were disabled in those times. And that's how he was provided for. And and, and, and the insight that was brought to us is that, that, that there wasn't a guaranteed answer to Jesus' question, do you want to be well? Because if he got well, after 38 years of, of knowing one thing, being a beggar, he all of a sudden was not qualified to receive funds as a beggar anymore if he got well. He would have to learn a new craft. He would have to, he would have to work in, in some capacity, uh, you know, well into his life. Getting well was a scary proposition, And many of us would agree. Many of us would rather continue in the comfort and familiarity of unhealth than we would would want to do the work to get health and to stay healthy. It's not a slam dunk which direction we're going to go. And so there are three points here. Two of them are questions and one of them is kind of a, a mic drop at the end. The questions are, these are from God to his people, why do you accuse me? Secondly, why do you forget? And then finally, it's time to remember. So why do you accuse me? Verse 3, the Lord says through the prophet, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. You know, God's indictment, God, God is in the dock right now. God is being you know, put in the position of defendant, by, by the people who've put themselves in the place of, of being his judge, and, and, and from the position of being the defendant, he issues an indictment against his people for indicting him, for presuming to indict him. You know, the earlier, the earlier messages in this series, you know, I, I, I paid a compliment to our congregation, and that is how willing and even eager so many of you are to hear the hard words from Scripture. You know, some of you said, bring on the conviction. We need to hear it. We need to see ourselves so that we can have fresh occasions to repent before the Lord, to to enjoy the gospel on a deeper level, having been forgiven again, and so on. But this, this passage begs another question. On the one hand, we can be very receptive to conviction of sin, but are, are we also receptive to God writing our stories in a way that we wouldn't want him to? Because that's what's happening here. Even Job, the most righteous man in the world, you know, goes through unparalleled suffering, loses 10 children in one day, loses his livelihood, his job, his property, his wife's respect, his health, all gone in, in, in a, the snap of a finger. And he starts out really well, you know, responding to God. You know, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We sing a song based on that passage sometimes in our church. But at some point along the way, as is very understandable, Job got frustrated by the silence of God. And he started to speak back. I don't like the way you're writing the story of my life. Who would if, if his story was our story? But he says to God, you mock the despair of the innocent. And then God responds, finally, in chapters 38 and following, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? 
Brace yourself like a man, Job. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Will you condemn me to justify yourself? And immediately Job gets low. And he says, surely I spoke of things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. There's a man in our church who uh, has gone through recently a season of unspeakable loss. And, and it's the kind of loss that will stay with him for the rest of his life. It will be like a bruise on his heart for the rest of his life. And, you know, two things have been, been remarkable about this, this man in our community. Number one, his willingness to be so honest about how things are not the way they're meant to be. And that's one thing that the Psalms invite us to do in our grief is to express it instead of stuffing it to the Lord in our helplessness. But the other thing is that, that all throughout the, the, the most intense seasons of his grief, when asked, how can we pray for you? His answer would be, we long for relief, but not without the revival of our hearts. In other words, we don't want to waste even this season of grief. We want revival. We want to know God more having gone through this. See, there's this wisdom gap that, that this, this brother of ours saw, sees that, that, that Job for a while couldn't make sense of. And, and the message there is there's a wisdom gap between us and God. God sees things and knows things that we don't. It's always the case. And just because Job can't make sense of it doesn't mean it doesn't make sense to infinite wisdom. And God alone has infinite wisdom. Hebrews 12 gives a window into this where it says in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, endure all hardship as discipline. And the word there is padea, which means education. It's not a, it's not a word that, that communicates punishment. It's a, it's a word that communicates development, specifically the development of your soul, the development of your heart more and more into the likeness of Christ through the crucible of pain. Endure all hardship as development. God is treating you as a son. For if you did not suffer hardship, you would be illegitimate children and not true daughters and sons, it goes on to say. And then he says, all hardship is unpleasant. All hardship is painful, yet later on it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained or educated or developed by it. It's another way of saying the long view must not be lost for the Christian. This life that we live now has to be put in perspective. The luckiest among us are going to get 70, 80, maybe 85 years on earth affected and impacted at some point and in some way by death, mourning, crying, pain, suffering, and sorrow. It's it's the world we live in right now. So let's just say we live to be 95 years old 
And suffering is a huge part of our reality, and we think, oh, this is so harsh to hear words like, endure hardship as discipline, especially if you're Job, which is where Job's friends got in trouble because they started throwing Bible band-aids at Job and accusing him for things they couldn't substantiate. You're going through all these things, and we're uncomfortable with it, so it's your fault. You must, there must be some kind of sin that you're nursing. There must be some kind of flaw, fundamental fatal flaw in you that, that has brought these things upon you. It's the only answer that we, in our discomfort with your suffering and with your grief and with your wailing, to, 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 to relieve ourselves, we're going to put it on you. And the Lord comes in, and he, he confronts Job, but he, he super confronts Job's friends for not being friends. You know, have you considered my servant Job? He has spoken wisely. All in the same narrative. You know, C.S. Lewis put it this way. Like if you have 70, 80, 90 years here, put that against infinite, perpetual, everlasting bliss, which is what is to come for every believer in Christ. The worst day in glory will outshine your very best day here. C.S. Lewis put it this way, heaven will work backwards and turn even agony into a glory. I think that, that I might want to tweak that based on what I'm reading here. Heaven will work backwards and turn especially agony into a glory. Because that's, that's how Hebrews 12 is set up, where it says, consider Jesus, who endured such opposition, yet who for the joy that was set before him, that was in front of him, he endured. For everlasting joy that was in front of him, he endured temporal sorrow as a pattern for us. Somehow, Eternal joy is proportional to our temporary pain, which gives the advantage to the ones who suffer most in terms of what the long-term enjoyment of what's coming and what will not end will be. So why do you accuse me, God says? But the second question would be, why do you forget? And all these, all these blessings are, are, are outlined here. God reminds them, beginning in verse 4, I have given you rescue. I brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the the mighty and and evil and, and damaging detrimental hand of Pharaoh. I delivered you from all of that. And then, when you were in the wilderness, I cared for you. I gave you Moses and Aaron and Miriam, who are supreme caregivers who prayed for you when anyone else would have tried to finish you off or wanted to finish you off. They prayed that I would spare you. And then I've given you love and loyalty. I took you from Shittim to Gilgal, he says. Well, Shittim was where Israel broke covenant with God. Gilgal is where God restored that same covenant with Israel. And then the promise that we learned about from chapter 5, I will give you, referring to Jesus Christ, a shepherd who will be your peace, who will be your shalom, who will be your comprehensive flourishing. And then here in verses 3, 5, and 16, it's repeated, you are forever and always my people. So on Palm Sunday and Easter, we're going to look at two um, 
two connected passages to, to launch uh, what, will, what will then after that be a series in First Peter. We're going to start with some narratives about Peter, and the first will be on Palm Sunday where he betrayed Jesus Christ three times. And then Easter Sunday will be where Jesus restores Peter from those betrayals. And one of the takeaways that, that, that we will visit and revisit on those two Sundays is that the Lord loved Peter no less when Peter was in the midst of betraying the Lord than the Lord loved Peter when Peter would later die on a cross upside down out of love and loyalty for his Savior. The love of God for Peter never wavered based on Peter's posture of heart or Peter's behavior. It was fixed and it was perfect and it all came from Christ. And, and this is what, what, what Micah is trying to get through. Like, you, you all have, you have been terrible. And yet God has continued to hold fast to his unfailing love for you. You know, the history of Israel is a history of forgetting the love of God. It's like they have dementia of the soul. You know, some of you uh, have the benefit of, of regularly or occasionally listening to the teaching of Paige Brown. So what some of you may not know is Paige is the daughter of my predecessor, Wilson Benton. Uh, she used to be Paige Benton and, and, and his lovely wife, who's you know, in our community and still kind of the mayor of the place, Pam Benton. So Paige, um, I had the privilege, as many of, of our pastoral staff did, of, of, attending, of overlapping in seminary with Paige uh, at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, uh, back in the, the, the 1400s A.D. And she's Paige Brown now, um, but when she was Paige Benton, she wrote this article called Singled Out for Good. And you can, you can Google it. It's out there. Uh, and it was, it was just her processing her struggle as a Christian with, with, with being single when she was eager to be married. And one of the excerpts from that essay goes like this. Every problem is a theological problem. And the habitual discontent of us singles is no exception. I long to be married. My younger sister got married two months ago. But God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me now than being single. You see, we singles are chronic amnesiacs. We forget who we are. We forget whose we are. I am a single Christian. My identity is not found in my marital status, but in my redemptive status. I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. I may never have another date and die an old maid at 93 because God is so good to me. Not my will, but his be done. Until then, I am claiming as my theme verse, if any man would come after me, let him. <laughs> So everywhere where she uses the word single, insert your pain point. How specifically is God frustrating your hopes and your dreams and your aspirations and all the ways you think your, your life should be working out, but it isn't? How is God rewriting your story that tempts you to go in a different direction, to, to be an amnesiac, to forget to not seek a cure for, for the dementia of your soul. 
because your career is just too important to you, or your money is just too important to you, or your status or the social circles that you, you, you're so desperate and eager to belong with is too important to you, your body type too important to you, what your kids think of you too important to you. Lastly, it's time to remember. Remember this about wisdom, by the way. The question is not, what is God taking from me right now? The question has to be, if you're wise, what is God giving to me through the taking? That's how wise people process disappointment. Lastly, it's time to remember, but remember what? That the one true God is a God of love, not transaction. God, in the first chapter through this prophet, has piled on the conviction. But, but here we have him beginning, after piling on conviction, to pile up blessing. You remember, just from, from the earlier point, he's rescued them. He's given them abundant care in the wilderness, his love and loyalty that cannot be taken from them, a shepherd who will be their peace. Marriage renewal is what God is inviting his people to. There's this metaphor that's used throughout Scripture. Christ uses it about himself. I'm the bridegroom, y'all are the bride. You know, Old Testament too. The Lord, I am the Lord, your husband. Your maker is your husband. And what does Israel do? Well, what, what any spouse would do. How can I pay for it? How can I get busy to prove myself that I'm worthy of this love that you've given me freely? Their response to his lavishing grace and love and mercy and kindness on them is to ask questions. Well, okay, what does that mean for us? Should we give you burnt offerings? Thousands of rams? How about we sacrifice our firstborn children to you? You know, I was um, texting back and forth with Nate Evans, who was preaching this text at uh, Cool Springs, our Cool Springs congregation this morning. I said, hey, man, my, my sermon's about 70% baked. Um, got any insights that, that you'd like to share? And, and one was, I mean, he shared a lot of gold, golden insights, but, but the pure gold was this. This is Nate Evans. He says, Israel is saying in response to God's gesture of faithfulness and love. That sounds great. What's your price? The way I read that is that Israel is treating God like a prostitute because that's how they're used to relating. They're used to soliciting prostitutes and they're used to prostituting themselves and they're used to paying a wage for every benefit. You know, the the gods of the surrounding nations were incredibly demanding and they asked for things like burnt offerings and thousands of rams and first, the firstborn. The problem is you, you could make those sacrifices to the false god, but you didn't know whether or not the, the false god was going to deliver on whatever the promise was. Rain, fertility, whatever else. It all depended on what kind of mood that god was in in that particular moment or on that particular day. 
treating God like a prostitute. Thank you for the intimacy. What's your price? That's all he knew. They were so entrenched in unhealth. They were so accustomed and comfortable with unhealth that they didn't even want to do the work to understand that God's love requires no work. That in itself is work. And it costs you your pride. And for some people, that's too costly. They have no category, Israel, for a God who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 17 full chapters before he says, Go for me into all the world and do for me. 17 full chapters. To give us 17 chapters to process, Come to me before he says, Go for me. They don't have a category for that sequence. And so here's the mic drop. Verse 8. This is, this is the verse that Micah is most famous for. The Lord has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And here's where we need to be careful because it's very tempting to think this is prescription. Be just. Be kind. Be humble. That it's about us first and foremost. There is a prescription in there, but it has to be descriptive of Jesus before it can become prescriptive for us or we will fail. Jesus is justice. Jesus is kindness and mercy. Jesus is humility. He is all these things. The justice of God was satisfied at the cross of Jesus Christ in a most unparalleled and unprecedented way where Jesus gave his perfect life to pay for all the sins of of we who have committed sins against him and prostituted ourselves. And so he's taken on and absorbed our sins and sorrows. And he qualifies to do that. He's absorbed the full penalty and wrath of what we deserve So we didn't have to pay it, but he paid it for us because justice had to be served. And then he gave us the full benefit and blessing and credit for his perfect, beautiful life. Somehow that is a fulfillment of justice. God does not treat us as our sins deserve because Jesus absorbed in himself what our sins deserve and gave us what his righteousness and beauty deserve. In its place. Jesus is also kindness. When we talk about prostitution, you can't help but think about the prophet Hosea, whose life was a metaphor for, for God relating to Israel. Hosea was this man that God said, stay married to this prostitute you're married to. Show her loving kindness and loyalty and pursue her. Love her back to life. Love her out of this because that's what it's like to be me, y'all. That's what it's like to be God. What does God say to unfaithful Israel, to the prostitute Israel, at the peak of their infidelity? I will speak tenderly to you, and I will betroth you to me forever. That's just a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom who brings the bride home. And Jesus is humility. 
Philippians 2, who for the joy set before him, I'm sorry, that's, that's Hebrews 12, though being in very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and became obedient even to death on a cross for our sakes. Jesus is the beauty who kisses the beast in us. And the thing about the, the beauty's lips in, 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 in Beauty and the Beast is her lips don't get contaminated through contact with the beast. The, the beast gets purified and beautified through, through contact with her beautiful, pure lips. And, and then he becomes beautiful enough for her to marry. As a peer, even. The Lord's Supper is Jesus' kiss. Think about that when the, when the bread and when the cup touch your lips, that Jesus is kissing you. Yes, to show his affection and unfailing love for you, but also to make you beautiful. Let's pray together. Lord, please stir our memory of the goodness that is ours because of Jesus Christ. Please forgive our forgetfulness that drives us into to asking you crazy questions like what is your price for this love that you've already freely given to us. Lord, just forgive us for thinking so little of you. Meet us now in the bread and the cup as we take your body and your blood into our bodies. May the truth about your rescue, your care in the wilderness, your love and loyalty always, the promise you've made of a shepherd who will always be our peace. Would those be even further solidified in our hearts and lives as we receive from you now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.